I want to share with you, as I begin, a story of a, a friend of ours told to my wife. Um, her name's Nancy, and she had uh, raised her children, and she was kind of at that point where she really hadn't finished her degree, and she, she wanted to go into counseling. So she went back, she went to a Christian school, a Christian university, and uh, got her degree in psychology so that she could begin to go on and get her master's degree in counseling. And she was praying about making the decision where she should go for that next uh, step in her master's degree. And, and thought, as she prayed through it, you know, she had, as from her childhood and through the years, she's had a really good Christian, strong background. She thought, well, I'm going to take my master's level at a secular school. So she did. And if you're familiar with master's programs, often they're not large classes. Often they can be smaller classes of 8 to 10 to 12 people. Well, she registered. She's in the program. I think she had taken a course or two, and she's now under a second course along this master's program. And at one point um, in the beginning of this class, there's, I think, about 10 people in the class. Uh, the uh, instructor said, what I want you to do is I want you to face one of your greatest fears, specifically with regard to you know society, something that um, you have to interact with that's taking place in our culture, and, or something out there that you go, boy, this is a, a social group that I'm af- that I'm really afraid of. And so they all had to think about. It. They came back to class the next day and they each shared what they were afraid of. And, and for her, the thing that scared her most was dealing with some people who were different than her, and those people would be people who would be. Um, struggling with their gender identity and this gender reassignment kind of a thing. And so she actually chose to try and understand what was going on in the hearts and lives. She said, that's what I'm most afraid of. That's what she was going to sign up for. Well, they went through the class and each shared. And do you know that four of about eight to ten of them shared their greatest fear? The social group they most feared entering and joining with was the church. They were most afraid to be in the company of Christians. And when I heard that, kind of as you did, you went, wow, I mean, isn't that the group you should be least afraid of, in a sense you should be most safe with? Aren't those the ones who really are all about love and grace and mercy? Well, Jesus, to his disciples, as I said last week, he lifted his cup at that last dinner and he said, I have a new contract, a new covenant I want to make with you. He was talking about a new one because an old one had been made in this new one. Jesus said, I have come because I know that you couldn't fulfill it, but I have come to fulfill it for you. And all those who had trusted me, this new contract, God did it all, all by his grace. All we needed to do is trust. Well, just before that dinner, he also had another new thing he was presenting on an old topic. And as he sat around with his disciples, if you turn to John chapter 13, or if you want to take a look up on the screen, we should have the verse there. I think it's even on your uh, program bulletin that you have in front of you. In John chapter 13, verse 34, just before Jesus was, um, he had washed the disciples' feet, he had shared with them a bunch of of, um, teaching, and now he was coming kind of near the end until they were going to actually take the Lord's Supper. And as he was sitting there with them, and he said that he was going to be leaving shortly and go to his suffering, he said this, A new command, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I couldn't help but thinking like I did last week, so what's so new about this command? 
in a, in a later writing of John, the book of First John, which really was written about 40 or so years after the, the, maybe even 50 years after the death of Christ. He writes to his group of followers and he says to them, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus did. That's what rabbis were all about in that day. They were not just teaching so that you could have a teaching and you could talk about this teaching. Their whole reason for living was to help do something that his disciples would eventually do, which involved teaching in truth. And so he says to him, you must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, says John, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. You kind of go, well, is it old or new? I mean, what is this about? He says, it's a new command. It's truth is seen in him, Jesus, and, and you. It's supposed to be seen in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And he goes on to say, you cannot love God without and at the same time hate your brother. There's something about love that is very important about this new command. And so which is it? It's both. It's the oldest command ever given. As John writes, you've had it since the beginning. It's ancient. It's one of the ancient paths. And yet at the same time, in another sense, it's new. Not in the sense of being original or being first of a kind, but it's new in this sense. That this genuine, unique love had been lost. Somewhere between Adam and Eve in the garden to the time of Christ, this genuine, God-like love had been misplaced. It got messed up. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new one. Now, no doubt during that time from Adam all the way to the time of Christ, there were some who walked this ancient path. But it really has been and is and still is today the road less traveled, so to speak. So Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, he issues a new command. And here's the key to this command. If you look at this verse, the part that was lost and had gotten screwed up by those who supposedly were intent on following it, the religious leaders of that day, those who were supposedly representing God. He said, here's the key. Love one another. And this is the part you want to know. As I have loved you. So you must love one another. See, love had gotten screwed up. What was called and labeled love really wasn't in that time. What was modeled as love wasn't. In many homes, this command of love was messed up. A lot of people grew up in what I would call a shame-based kind of a love. The same kind of stuff that people do today. This dysfunctional kind of patterns of living that, that we label love but aren't, isn't really love. In many of the synagogues, which were the religious or, or the Jewish churches of that day, it was preached and it was taught all about love. In fact, they, they would speak of this love. And they actually couched it with scripture. But as Jesus went from synagogue to synagogue, he often saw that there was no love there. Many of the religious leaders that lived in the day of Jesus in that time, who practiced a kind of love, that as he watched it and his disciples watched it and the people of that day watched it, they felt like the four who said, the last thing I want to do is go to a church and be with Christians. Because that kind of love had become false. It wasn't the ancient, old, genuine kind of love that God revealed in relationship to man. It was a kind of love that was consumed with control. Had a need and a desire to use people for one's benefit. There was manipulation. There was self-interest. It was driven by fear. 
And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you know what, the kind of love you've seen out there, that's not the kind of love that I want you to follow. I have shown you and modeled and taught a whole new kind of love. And soon I'm going to be leaving you. When I leave you, he says to his disciples and to those who would follow him, to everyone in this room, here's the kind of love that I want you to have. It's a new kind of love. It's the kind of love that you see modeled in me. So what is this real love? What is this new, new kind of unique love that Jesus was talking about? Well, I was thinking about and praying about how to, to share with this. And, and as I was looking at passages of Scripture, and I had a number that I could have uh, looked at where we looked at Jesus in reaction in response to that kind of false love. The one that just popped out to me was Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. And sometimes I think the best way to get a grip and to look at what is genuine and real, sometimes it's to contrast it with what it isn't. And that's what we do is you look at Jesus gives six woes, six kind of watch out statements to the religious leaders of his day. Verse 42 says, woe. verse 43, verse 44, verse 46 and verse 47. And then finally, verse 52, all those six says he says, woe. Well, I want to share with you a little bit of the context of the story when you come to Luke 11. It's important to understand what was happening. And it begins, if you turn, and, and, and we have that, I think we have that scripture up there, yes. It says that when Jesus had finished speaking, what was going on is Jesus was teaching, and often when he would teach, people would, would invite him to their homes for dinner. And that's exactly what happened here. When Jesus was done teaching, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. And so they, he went and he reclined at the table. It's common that when they would go to a home to eat, it wasn't kind of the, you didn't have chairs where you'd sit in chairs and you'd sit around a table like this. The table was often close to the floor, so they'd actually recline. They'd kind of lay with their shoulder and they would eat and they could discuss and talk to one another. That's why when it says that, John, that Jesus laid his head on the, the shoulder of John, it gives you a little idea. He kind of leaned over and there was John. It feels a little weird if he was like this at a table, you know. And so here's Jesus, he's at this meal, and this meal is not just Jesus. I don't even know if some of his disciples were there. He may have given them the, the you, know, you know, go, go. he probably said, go to McDonald's, I'm going here to get a good meal. Um, just kidding. Anyway, um, he was probably uh, Burger King. Anyway, um, and he says to him, he says, you know, as he comes to this meal, here at this meal is not just this one Pharisee, but often there would be a group of his friends and some others that he invites so they could all kind of get to hear from the, this rabbi. And so here they are at this meal, and it literally says in verse 38, the Pharisee was watching, and he noticed Jesus didn't wash his hands. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash his hand before the meal, was surprised. The message says it this way, the Pharisee was shocked and somewhat offended when he saw that Jesus didn't wash up before the meal. Now, I want you to know something. It wasn't that Jesus had failed to follow the signs in the bathroom. You know those bathroom signs that they're passed to a mirror that says all employees must wash their hands before they return to work? Anybody seen those? Even to see those in a bathroom make me nervous. You've got to tell people to wash your hands. That's not what it was. It wasn't a hygienic thing that Jesus was con- that, that they, they were concerned about here. It was really a ritual thing. It was a religious issue. It was about this external kind of religion. It was the symbols that were, they were doing that were supposedly reflecting an inward work of God in their heart. And so here he is, and this person is looking at this religious activity, sees that Jesus doesn't do it, and he's making an evaluation. He's judging. Oh, don't we love to judge? Don't we love to judge, right? And he's judging and he's looking and he's trying to figure out whether Jesus is in or as Heidi Klum would say, he's out. Well, some of you have maybe seen Project Runway. Anyway, 
I have three girls in my home, so anyway. Um, football, anyway. This wasn't about a self-giving love. About a self, it was really more about a self-protecting kind of love. This was a standard of measure that in the eyes of this Pharisee and the other ones he was with right there, in Jesus' failing to do this was also an ability for them to look and judge and say he didn't quite measure up. And in, the, in this passage of Scripture, when we read verse 39, really, if you could just put in, the, in, the, in kind of parentheses, read between the lines, I think Jesus is shocked and somewhat offended. Because his response is this. Then the Lord said to him, he looks at this guy, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish or what you have to the poor and everything will be clean for you. He's kind of saying, you know, the pure heart is the one that is, is the one that reflects it from what they do by the love that they show. Not by the condemning, judgmental nature that they reflect. And he basically is saying, you frauds, you bunch of phonies. You do these things to look like you love God and one another, but in reality, you're just full of selfishness. Most of the stuff isn't even about God or about really truly loving others. It's about stuffing yourselves with a sense of power and a feeling of being right and justified in other people's eyes and not necessarily even God's. And Jesus has enough. He's shocked and offended. He's tired of this religious spirit that seeks to look good but not necessarily do good. So he turns to his disciples. I want to tell you something. There's an ancient, there's an old path. It's gotten messed up. You've seen it not the way it should be. It's not about looking good. It's about doing good. It's about not looking like you're loving and you're in relationship with God. It's about really being in relationship with God and truly loving people. And so he goes on and he says to these Pharisees, he starts out with three woes or three what I call watch out, you're heading for hell. Or maybe a softer way to say it is, watch out, you're going to live a lonely life with no intimacy and no deep inner peace. Because rules and regulations and living that kind of way doesn't bring about intimate relationship. It never causes hearts to touch hearts. It just keeps people safe and secure so that you can use one another to somehow make it through life. So he points out what false love looks like. I'm just going to give you what I can in a positive way. The first, what I call measure of real love, is a loving person does what is right. Not necessarily religious. A person who is full of love does what is right, not necessarily religious. Verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect the justice and love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. He's not saying those things that you're doing are necessarily bad. He's just saying what you're doing, you've just forgot the heart of it. And when you forget the heart of it, sometimes the practical outworking of the heart of it is different than what you think it is. But you guys have started down here, and you're counting little seeds. The seed that I have, I've got 50 seeds here, and if I can make sure I get five, that'll make just right, and God will be happy with me. That kind of stuff never works. It reminds me of when I used to with, with my wife, and we'd have these kind of discussions, never arguments, but discussions. You know, we had arguments. You know, you're just giving you know way too much time, and I'd go, but look at my calendar. See, I'm here. It just doesn't work. The kind of legalistic. Well, look at this because you know what? We don't want one another's little list of I did this, this, and this. We want one another's what heart. 
And a loving person does what is right, not necessarily religious. In fact, at one point, Jesus shares a story just a few uh, days before this in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, if you, even a chapter before this. And someone comes to him, a Pharisee, and says, well, how do I attain eternal life? And he says, well, what do you think? What does the law say? And this guy had a good answer. He said, well, the law says, you know, you're to love God and love one another. And she says, right on, you got it, that's it. But he knew that in his heart that he didn't quite get it. So he said, let me tell you a little story. Here's the story. This guy was walking down the road. He got beat up. He was left for dead. And he's laying by the side of the road. And all come, comes along a priest. And this priest who's walking along walks right by him because he knows if he touches him, he's contaminated. He can't do that. The religious thing is what he needed to do. And so he walks by him and he doesn't love. He, he, he did the minor thing, but not the major thing, which is to express love. Next guy comes by, he's a Levite, does the same thing, walks right by, busy, who knows what's going on in his life, but he doesn't stop. But then the guy, those two are the two in guys, the guy who looks like he's out, he's a Samaritan. He didn't really have all the beliefs right, he didn't really necessarily practice all the things that the Bible, according to the Old Testament, said was right. But the Samaritan comes by, and God is saying, the guy who's out, Jesus is saying this, and God threw him, the guy who is out walks by, sees this other guy in the side of the road, picks him up, carries him to a place in the inn, gets it so that he has money, so that he can be healed and refreshed and everything else, and he goes on his way, and Jesus says, now who really is the guy? who's in what a guy counting the seeds right i want to share with us as a body the one thing i do not want us to do is just add religious activity and get people really involved doing a lot of things here when there's a lot of things out there that god might be calling us to do we need to be very wise and very discerning to do what is the right thing which is the loving thing because loving people do the right thing they don't necessarily do the religious little thing There's a second thing that I think is a good measure of real love that you read this passage of Scripture. And the second measure of real love is this. A loving person is grounded in God's love. This is key and and really important to all this. Because when he's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, you guys are so excited about washing your hands. You like to wash the dish and you're so concerned about the outside. But you know, it's the inside that really matters. That's where the germs are going to really be. You see, in that day, they'd wash their hands. They would actually knew how much water they were to take. They didn't take regular water. They had some water that was even purified or cleansed and set apart. So they'd take that water, just a certain amount. They'd let it run down their hands like this, and then they would take their fist. They had a certain way to do it, and they'd take this with their other fist, and they'd wash it. They'd then take some more water, and they'd run it down this way so it dripped down their hands. But the whole idea is symbolically what they were doing is purifying themselves. And I think Jesus is saying, I wish you guys would get more excited and be more um, into washing, in a sense, Not just your hands, but your heart. I wish you would pay far more attention not to the things on the outside, that which is external, that which seems to be religious. I wish you would pay far more attention to what's going on in the working and motions and movements of your heart. Because when you do, and you know this, and you move through this, and you become grounded in God's love, this stuff gets expressed out here. So the thing you look at here is, he says first to the Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees. Because you love the most important or prominent seats in in the church, synagogue. And you love to be greeted in the marketplace. You're all about being affirmed and approved by all kinds of people. Far more important to you is to have the favor of others and to be justified in their eyes than it really means to be justified in God's eyes. And what Jesus is saying and what he lived and what he modeled and what he's saying to his disciples, I'm telling you something new here. And this new thing is this. It is far more important for you to be grounded in God's love. Because when you're grounded in God's love, you don't need the approval and affirmation of other people. If you don't have that grounding of God's love in your heart, do you know what? All the affirmation, all the approval in the world will never fill yourself. I I, I can attest to it because I've been there. 
I know how insecure and defensive I have been I'm coming out of my own unhealthy patterns of, of life and with family and churches and everything else. And I can tell you this, that I remember times standing at the back of the church, and on those days I preached well, it was like, it was, it was good. The days I didn't, I felt rotten. But the reality was, even on the days I did well and people affirmed me, I couldn't believe it because I had nothing down here to hold it. So Jesus, I love the guts that Jesus has. He, he's, he's here with these Pharisees. They invite him to his house. And this guy's watching him. And isn't it gutsy to say, well, I, I look at another occasion that shows the groundedness of, of Jesus. Jesus often did what was loving, knowing he would actually be rejected by those who most of us would want to be affirmed by. It was on a Sabbath. There was a man who had a withered hand. It says, Mark 3, verse 1, and I'll read this. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they what? They watched in order to condemn and judge. We like to do that because we, it makes us feel better. It makes us feel more in. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, this is gutsy. They're watching him, and he's going, stand up in front of everyone. You can't do that if you're really concerned about those guys approving you. But, but Jesus was more concerned. His love was, was grounded in God's love. And because it was so grounded in his love, he could actually reach out and love this person who needed help at that moment. And so he stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them and catches. He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to evil, to save life or to kill? And I, I got to tell you, I, I go, how could they sit there? And not go, of course, to do good and to save life. But listen to this, how hard the heart can be. They remain silent. Gutsy Jesus, gutsy, grounded in love before his father, Jesus, looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at the stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And, and here's the Pharisees. Don't you think they'd be going, wow, cool. Yes, that's what we're about. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians. These two people couldn't stand each other. The Pharisees Herodians were always at war until they had something to join hands with. They went out with the Herodians and they sought how to kill Jesus. Being grounded in God's love frees you up from the favor of man so that you can live under the favor of God and do the things that are really tough to do, even when people are going to reject you and be angry at you and all those other things. I can tell you I've been there. It is really lonely. It's very difficult. The third measure of real love, a loving person is full of integrity. In, in 1 John, he talks a lot about love and light. And the fact is that when, love, when, when light is present, it dispels darkness. When light is within the heart, it actually begins to just penetrate and move out the darkness. When love is in the heart, the same thing has to happen. And in a sense, he says, the person who is full of love is full of integrity. What you see is what you get. Through and through, they are the same. The love on the outside is motivated by a selfless love on the inside. So verse 44, woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men are walking over without even knowing. You look on the outside like you're okay, but underneath, you're not. What's really interesting is, is what makes this whole love thing difficult, why Jesus has a new command I give to you. What makes this all so difficult is we have a hard time seeing love. If you've been raised in, or in a home or you've been raised in, a, in a, 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 a 
church situation or if you've been raised in a, uh, a business where the authority and, and those who are in control are, are, are leading with unhealthy patterns of love, it's real difficult to discern what is love and what isn't love. And Jesus said this was screwed up in, in his day. Look, those who, who looked like they loved on the outside really didn't love because if you just peeled away about six feet of dirt, you'd see what's underneath it all. It was rotting and decaying and no good. That's why Jesus called them unmarked graves. They were far more concerned about appearance versus reality. In fact, these all first three woes are all about people who are seeking to find through, through appearance their approval. Now, I want you to note here, it's kind of interesting if you look at the next verse. Just flip over to verse 45, because there's, a, there's an interesting pause between 44 and 45. There's this, what I call, just think, just imagine being in the room and Jesus just said this to these people who have invited him for dinner. What do you think is going on? It's just, you ever been in this uncomfortable? No one's, you know, everyone's kind of looking at their food, just going to eat. And someone finally gets enough nerve to say, you know, would you pass the potatoes? It's just uncomfortable. And the Pharisees are just getting stung. So verse 45, so one of the experts in the, in, in the matter of the law, the scribes, these were legal lawyers who, who were not necessarily, who, 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 their law was in trying to understand how the Mosaic law, the Old Testament, the five books of the law, were to be actually um, expressed throughout life. And the Pharisees would come to him and say, well, how do you, you know, what do you say here? What does God's word say about this? And these legal experts would look at it and say, this is what we understand it to be. And so here's this guy. One of the experts in the matter of the law says, teacher, um, when you say these things, you may not realize it, but you insult us also. I just think the Bible's funny. Can you imagine that? They're all kind of sitting, one guy's just asked for potatoes, and one, one scribe is just terribly uncomfortable. He gets the guts up and he goes, you know, Jesus, um, the things you're saying are also kind of pinching us a bit. And I love this, because Jesus looks at the scribe, and in a sense, he says, I'm really sorry. I really did not mean to not include you. <laughs> so Jesus gives three more woes, and he turns to the scribes. I, I just, I mean, Guts. Three more what I call measures of real love. The fourth measure of real love is a loving person sacrifices and serves the interests of others. Verse 46, Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can care, hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. I, I, that is powerful. They were more concerned about their traditions and tastes, their own self-interest, than they were truly about helping people discover a relationship with God. You would think that's what it was all about, right? The whole reason you'd go to the book of the law, which is really the, the law of love, was to figure out how you can remove obstacles, how you can set aside things that, you might get in the, that might get in the way so that people can come straight to God and know Him in a very intimate and personal way. It says they loaded people down and they wouldn't even lift a finger to help them. They didn't care about their neighbor if it meant they would have to set aside some personal tastes, some traditional ways of doing things, some things that they're used to. And I just really want to be frank and honest because we're going to kind of deal with this in the weeks to come and months to come. We're going to just ask ourselves of the church body. I think all of us, I want us just to look into our own heart and look into our own ministry. Are we doing all that we can to remove obstacles that would keep people from experiencing the goodness of God? Are there things that are maybe matters of taste or tradition that keep us from most effectively Helping someone hear 
the truth about God and feel his love? Are there structures, good things in place in this church, ways of doing ministry that we love and enjoy, but maybe keeping people from truly connecting with God? I remember when I was working through things in seminary, one of the books that I had to read was this life story of George Whitfield, and there are books that are two volumes that are, like, huge. But I was so engrossed in it, the way it was written and everything. And I also then read after it about John Wesley. And one of the things that's really interesting, whenever God does a new move where he connects with people who don't know the Lord and he starts really moving into communities, into lives of people, he usually sets aside things that become obstacles in the way of people knowing God. Well, in that time when Whitfield was on fire for God, and Wesley and his six of them, they were just on fire for God. They would go into the church and they'd preach and they'd get kind of a semi-response, but then they would tell other people in other places and people would get excited about it. And then eventually what happened, there were occasions where they would be out in, in, in areas outside the church and they would start telling about God and a crowd would begin to come and it would get larger and larger and they'd start just basically telling people about God. And, and in that process, people came to Christ and eventually... They went to the places where people who were afraid to come to the church because they were afraid of Christians, because they were afraid of being judged. They weren't being loved. These people in one of the places where were coal miners were coal miners were horrible people with rotten language, dirty, etc., etc. They wouldn't come to church. They didn't even feel safe in a church. So Whitfield went and he started to preach and people started to turn to, to God. He would be out at these coal mines and Wesley would do the same thing in different areas. And guess what happened? The traditional church, the Anglican church of that day, you know what they did? They kicked them out of the church. They excommunicated them because in that day, in that age, the only way you were supposed to preach the gospel of God was in a church behind a pulpit. And those were the seedbeds of crusades that we have heard, you know, when Billy Graham would go around in a stadium, in a stadium. And that day they would go, what in the world are you doing in a stadium? You've got to be at a church behind a pulpit. And you go, that seems ridiculous. Right? I tell you, some of the things that we do, that we hold on to that really aren't things of God that the Pharisees themselves did because it makes us uncomfortable or whatever it might be, is silly. Here is, I think, of Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China. Here he goes to China. In that day and age, the missionaries would only wear Western clothes and they would teach in a specific way and they had these ways they did it because that's the way they did it back home. And you went stray from that. And if you did, you had the disapproval and you were not being affirmed by those on the outside or at least those who were the religious elite that were running the missions thing. Hudson Taylor and, and others, they couldn't break through. People would not even listen to the message of Jesus Christ in those countries. And he had gone there and he had prayed about it. He said, God, I'm sure you want me to be there. And I know when, and one time in prayer as he was praying, he was asking for God for wisdom. And, and, and I don't know if he was, he was meditating and praying about Jesus, God himself coming in flesh. But he thought, you know what, I'm going to wear the same kind of clothes that they wear. And he began to teach in other places and, and means of the way that they did. And what happened was amazing. People started to turn to Christ. Because the obstacles, the things that we thought were dear and important as they were set aside, Jesus showed up. And I just have to say to you, a loving person is a person who does what is right, who is grounded in God's love and isn't concerned about the affirmation and approval of others, but more so about God, is full of integrity, and then also is a person who is willing to sacrifice and serve setting aside their own self-interest in order to remove whatever obstacle it is so that people can connect with God. And the fifth measure of real love is a loving person listens and receives the truth. 
It says in verse 47, Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So they, you testify that you approve what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. And because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it. What was he saying? He's basically saying a truly loving person that is willing and, and, and desirous to hear the truth. They will listen. They will, they will in humility, um, begin to work through whatever insecurities they have. They will begin to move into a place as they grow that they will begin to hear the truth. And not only hear the truth, they want to hear the truth. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you not want to hear the truth? I had one of the ushers come up to me after the, service, the first service, and he goes, uh, is that a new suit or a new sport coat? And I go, well, yes, it is. I got it at Target for $40. Do you like it? And he goes, well, let me cut this back here for you. He was a little afraid <laughs> to share with me the truth. And I had just gotten done with this message. I said, I want to know the truth. Why would I want to know? Why would I want to walk around with this thing tied and everybody looking at it going like this, right? I mean, if God is sending truth to you through someone, don't you want to hear it? But they didn't want to hear it. A person who isn't loving doesn't want to be upset with things because they're too afraid, they're too insecure, they're too, they're too wanting to control their own environment, and they want to use these things to feel safe, etc., etc., etc. And God says the church that is truly loving is the church that is grounded in His love so much so that they're able to do what? Hear the truth and follow. And the last I'm going to share with you, the sixth, is that a loving person truly knows God and knows others. He says, woe to you experts in law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourself have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. He's basically saying to you guys, you don't have any knowledge, and, the, and you've got to go, wait a second, Jesus. They're the ones with the PhDs. They know the Bible. They know all about it. And he said, no, they know all about God. They don't know God. They don't really even know hearts of other people. A truly loving person is a person who knows God's heart and begins to get to know other people's hearts. It's just the way it works. And so... It all ends with this, going back to verse 13, chapter 13 of John, verse 35. He says, this is how Isaiah will be known as a follower of me. Well, he kind of said that to his disciples, so it means us too. By this they will know that you are my disciples. You see, in that day, the rabbi would often have a distinguishing mark. His disciples would have either shaved heads with a little bit of hair, or they would, they would have um, some kind of, a, kind of robe with a certain color with maybe a red sash, or they would maybe just be eating vegetables, and you would go, oh, that's, that's Hillel's disciple. Oh, yeah, that's, that's Josiah's disciples. That's the rabbi so-and-so. You could always tell by the, what they were wearing. And Jesus said, you know what, we're going to do something totally different. We're not going to have any kind of external mark that's going to show that we really are his disciples. It's not whether you go to so many programs and activities within a church. It's not whether you worship at a certain time. It's not the way you worship, whether it's traditional, contemporary. It's not any of those kind of things. Here's the mark that will define you and me if you're a follower of Jesus. Love. love. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and we're going to sing this song. And I'm just going to, with your head bowed for just a moment, I'm going to just ask you to say, God, is there an area in my life where you need to change my heart, where I need to be loving, where I need to grow? Amen. Mm-hmm.